Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion podcast exploring the most critical challenges for venture-backed tech entrepreneurs along the startup, grow-up, and scale-up journey. Every two weeks, we speak to founders, experts, and venture capitalists from around the world about their experiences. And we're back for the third episode of this batch. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, Paul. Yourself? Oh, very, very good. Always our little routine at the start of these episodes. I'm very, very uh, looking forward to the one today because it's a topic that, uh, unbeknownst to many, I actually know quite a lot about, even though I'm not the guest, guys, don't worry. Uh, we're going to talk about talent. So what we're going to be diving into, I think it's one of, if not the most important skill for a startup founder, right the way through their journey, which is why on one hand and then how to hire game-changing people. That's the topic. And who do we have to talk about this? So we have Maddie Cross and Maddie is our Director of Talent. Nice. Let's just kind of set the scene a little bit. So, Please. you know, when we look at our portfolio companies and the wider ecosystem, you know, we, we see businesses that grow at extraordinary speeds and often way faster than, than most people can grow. And we were talking about this with Chris Topman on the previous interview. And we've always believed, intuitively known, that the very best founders level up their teams. As the companies grow, they, they're transforming almost round to round, bringing in executives who have proven experience to deliver on the next set of challenges, the next period of growth. But we, we never really had anything evidential to back that up. Now, Chris, who we spoke to um, on the previous interview, was a founding partner at Notion. He's taken that leveling up to, to an art form. You know, he, he will track executives that he wants to get into one of his portfolio companies for three to four years. On the day we were recording that interview, that last interview, he just got the nod on somebody he'd been pursuing for more than five years as somebody he wanted to get into one of his portfolio companies. That's how seriously he takes it. So he's turned that into a bit of an art form. But what Maddie's done is really turn that into a science. And uh, that's been transformational for us last year and, and this year. And so Maddie, welcome along. Thanks. Nice to be here. Let's jump straight in. So like, over the last 12 months, you and your team have gathered I mean, just a huge amount of data primary data, proprietary information on this, the hiring habits of the world's most successful enterprise technology companies. I suppose what, what's interesting to kind of kick off the conversation is what really inspired you to, to do that? Good question. So a few things, I think. Firstly, the thing that you just mentioned, I guess, which is that for a long time at Notion, we've kind of had a gut feel about how this works in terms of hiring leadership teams and certainly Chris Topman on the previous podcast um, talks a lot about it and has got a really, really good understanding of how it works. But we were kind of making advisory comments to founders like, oh, you've got to hire people who experience, you've got to hire quicker, you've got to look global for your hiring. The people that you hire into your leadership teams have got to have worked in a VC-backed startup before, this kind of thing. But we didn't actually know that that was true. Um, and I think we all kind of knew it was true. But occasionally founders would, you know, poke around in that advice and sort of say, well, how do you actually know that? And it's like, well, actually, it's a good point. We think it's true, but we don't really know. So that was the first thing to sort of make that slightly more compelling and, and to make sure that what we were saying was correct. Because obviously the, the advice that we give to founders, we want it to be correct. So that was one thing. And then there's just generally a lack of data on, on most HR 
talent stuff aside from compensation. But realistically, 80% of the money that we give to founders, and I should point out that this is because we are a software investor for hardware businesses, it's obviously quite different. But for what we do, 80% of the money we give to our founders goes on hiring people. So it's really important that they get it right, but they're kind of doing it blindly with not really any data on how to deploy that capital. And then I think that the last thing was that founders have got so much stuff going on. I think it's really easy to forget that at the same time as us giving them advice about who they should be hiring, they're also thinking about runway. They're thinking about the next round. They're thinking about like which office they're going to rent. They are thinking about like that next trip to see a client in Los Angeles. How am I going to fit that in? They're thinking about often their partners and their kids. So if you've just got a handful of data points to show them about talent, the message gets through a lot quicker than if you're talking about it at length and reading lots of books. Like you can just say, for example, 100% of unicorns had at least one person in the leadership team that had been to a top 50 university. Like it's really easy to grasp that quickly and not get distracted by a longer conversation when founders need something that's quite to the point. So it's really those three things that got me thinking about what data is there available that we can use to back up our advice to help founders deploy capital in the best possible way and to get that message to them quickly. And there were a couple of things as well, points where you saw demonstrable impact of those kind of game-changing hires. And that, I think that kind of triggered a kind of phase where you, you really dove into more and more data. Yeah, I think so. Well, it's, um, it seems like for the majority of very senior kind of game-changing hires, and I'm sure Chris probably spoke about this as well, there's usually a metric that changes when somebody like that joins the business. So if it's a chief revenue officer, it will probably be ACV or it will just be total revenue will suddenly take a big turn up. If it is like, say, chief people officer, then that is usually measures of culture and general sort of happiness. So there's always something... And those data points are really interesting and having another data set to back those up in terms of like the people you should be hiring is kind of what got me interested in it. Plus the fact that the data is out there. It's all on LinkedIn. So it's not like we had to create a new data source to be able to do this. It's all sitting there. We just hadn't gone through it. Yeah, it makes sense. You're backing up what you believed with evidence. And, and a lot of our founders really appreciate that. Yeah. And I think it was also like looking for stuff that we didn't know was true, which I think I'll talk about a little bit later in this podcast. But it was also like an exploratory thing. It's like we've got all this data that we haven't aggregated. It's like, what, what's it going to tell us that we don't already know? So what did you learn and, and what surprised you? Quite a few things, actually. One thing I had really expected to find but did not find was experience per person in leadership teams. So just to give a bit of background on what the data set actually is, it's a list of everyone who's had a VP, president or chief title in B2B SaaS unicorns, businesses that have become unicorns in the last 10 years. So that's about one and a half thousand people. And then I took the same data set for businesses that did not succeed in becoming unicorns, but did raise the same amount at Series A. So one set of businesses that have done exceptionally well, and one set of businesses that have done well, but nowhere near to being unicorns. And then within that data set, on every person that's had a VP, president or chief title, I've got the years of experience of them before they started the job, how long they were in the job what function they were in, where they went to university for undergraduate, postgraduate, 
where they'd worked before and whether they'd been in the military or not and whether they'd started a business before. So that, that's just a bit of an overview of the data set. I was expecting to find quite a big difference in the two groups in terms of experience per person. I was expecting that I would find unicorns hired more experienced people than non-unicorns, but actually I didn't find that at all. The experience per person in the two groups is, is the same. The really surprising thing was it was just the number of people that unicorns hired and how quickly they hired them. So at the point of raising the first round of between three and $15 million, in that year after raising that amount, companies that went on to be unicorns hired between three and four people who were VP or C-level, whereas businesses that did not become unicorns hired an average half a person. So in other way, in, in another way of looking at it is just looking at the years of experience total that were added to the team. So in the first year after Series A, unicorns added roughly sort of 35 years of experience to their leadership team. Whereas non-unicorns added about five years. Huge difference, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So like one year after Series A, unicorns have got almost double the amount of years of experience leading them than businesses that didn't become unicorns. And this also isn't before the unicorns were famous. This is just in the year post-Series A. So this is when, like for example, HashiCorp were like not a well-known business. They're just like a cloud infrastructure business based in San Francisco that are doing reasonably well, but no one's really heard of them. So it's not like they were attracting C-suite people that were incredible because of their brand name. They just raised like a sort of five million round. Nothing really particularly out of the ordinary. So that was really the most interesting thing. And I think the second most interesting thing for me personally was that unicorns generally hired a lot more people that had been to top universities. So top 100 universities for undergraduate like every single unicorn on the list hired at least one person to a leadership team who had an undergraduate degree from a top 100 uni. And in non-unicorns, that number was a a lot lower. It's around about 60%. But the other thing that really surprised me about that particular data point was that unicorns also did a much better job of hiring people that hadn't been to university at all into their leadership teams. They hired four times as many technical leaders that did not go to university as companies that didn't become unicorns. So what we're really seeing there is that unicorns did this amazing job of either hiring people that were academically at the top of their game, and I mean academic in the sort of traditional sense of having gone to a top university, not being smarter than other people, just to be clear, but also people that were practically at the top of their game. They were so great at their functional expertise, they had become VP or C-suite without further education. It's an incredible range of kind of ability of knowledge that you get when you, you have that such a diverse set of people in a team. And that was quite a profound difference between the two groups, was it? Yeah, it was a huge difference. And I think uh, having spoken to a few founders of Unicorns about this, they're pretty well aligned. The general commentary is like, we want people that are different, as in people that have been to top universities usually have like a quite methodical way of approaching things. And it's really usually quite like reasonably standardized, but like obviously very well thought through and very high level. And people that have not gone through further education generally take a slightly different angle on that and can poke around in it and like add like different facets of value. And together you get this kind of magic soup of like different ways of thinking. But the primary thing is that both sets of people are at the top of their game. 
either from a traditional academic background or having taught themselves practically. And I think the other thing in that that I found really interesting was, particularly with technical people that had not been to university, as I've started having more conversations around this data, is that what I've started to find is people that ended up in unicorns and technical leadership positions in, in unicorns that had not been to university had often started at university, which we know from sort of Bill Gates type stories, they'd start at university, but because they'd coded and taught themselves for years, they'd get to university and just go, well, this is kind of a waste of my time because I actually already know all this. So then they dropped out. It wasn't that they hadn't been able to get into university or they didn't want to go. It was just like, they're kind of like, actually me teaching myself is, I'm passionate enough about this to teach myself. Yeah. It's interesting because these are things that you could believe. But, yeah. But the, it's very different from saying, actually, there's evidence here to show this is what happens. Yeah, exactly. And I think like, as I go through a lot of this data, when I really think about it, none of it's really that surprising because of stories like people like Bill Gates and then people like Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who obviously met sort of famously at Stanford, one of the top universities. So it's like, oh, okay, yeah, like actually when I think about application of this data to stuff that's really well known in startups like Google and Microsoft, it really makes sense. It really makes sense. And it's, it's great to have that data to back up to say that it's not just Google and Microsoft. There's lots of other companies that have done the same thing. Yeah. The last thing that is very interesting I think probably didn't really surprise us because this is another thing we had a reasonably good gut feel around was tenure. So tenure in the unicorn VP and C-level is shorter than tenure in non-unicorn VP and C-level. So in unicorns, people at that level tend to stick around for about three years, whereas in non-unicorns, it's more like four years. And I think what we really see there is that Unicorn leaders tend to be more brutal about letting people go when they are not at the same stage that the company's at anymore. It's not like a sacking. It's not like, we don't think you're good at your job. You've got to go. It's more like you were the amazing person that got us from 10 million to 25 million, but the next 25 to 50 million isn't your jam. You've not done it before. Go somewhere else and do the bit that you've done before. We think you're amazing at that, but we're going to bring someone else in who's done this bit before. It's that kind of dialogue, whereas it seems like non-unicorns tended to hold on to the same people, even though whilst those people had added incredible value for a few years, they now maybe weren't the right person to lead that function. So they move fast. They... I think it's also quite like a high energy and dedication level thing. So if you speak to someone like Bill Macchiatis, who was CMO at Slack, and before that he was CMO at Zendesk, he'll go to a place for two and a half, three years, give it everything he's got and and it's really high octane and he makes a lot of change and he does really groundbreaking things and at the end of that like there's only so much energy I think that one person can give to a business for a period of time it's incredibly tiring so it's like these are people that hit the ground running make a lot of changes do a lot of innovative work and then they really need to go and do something else because burnout's the wrong way to say it but like burning bright basically for a short period of time yeah so the data is fascinating, but obviously the world's changing. New companies emerging all the time. How are you keeping the data that you're collecting current? It's probably two things. One is that every time a new unicorn in B2B SaaS gets announced, I'm adding it into the data set. And then I'll start removing businesses that were started more than 10 years ago. So the data set I've got at the moment is 2008 to 2018. 
And in the next few months, I'll strip out businesses that started in 2008 and it will be 2009 to 2019. And then we're also starting to look at another data set that just looks at businesses that have been valued at a lesser amount, but within a shorter period of time. So we can get a read on businesses that have not had a chance to become unicorns yet, but are definitely on that trajectory. So there'll probably be two data sets. There's a unicorn one, and then there's one that will be roughly probably 200 million within like three to four years. I know you're using this data. You're, you're talking to, to our founders and to the marketplace. Kind of what, what's the response been? The response has all been really positive. I think for founders, it can be reasonably confronting because often they struggle to make these really big hires for reasons that I think we'll come on to. But having this data in front of them means they kind of can't shy away from making decisions about senior hiring, particularly the data point about adding between three and four very experienced people to your leadership team within one year. Like for most founders, that feels really uncomfortable. But on the flip side of that, it's also really positive to see now how quickly they can change their minds about preconceptions they had before seeing the data. So for example, a dialogue that goes something like, we've just given you your Series A money, who are you going to hire into the leadership team? Oh, well, we're thinking about hiring a VP sales or a chief revenue officer, but we'll probably take six months to 12 months to make that decision. And then we'll get a search firm on it. And then it'll be another probably six months, 12 months before that person starts. Okay, so let's have a look at the data of unicorns. And you can see that the average unicorn, there was three months between them getting their Series A and them hiring their VP sales chief revenue officer. Like, how do you feel about that now? And then it's like, oh, yeah, okay, maybe you're right. So that conversation takes about an hour, whereas that conversation used to take maybe six months to 12 months where it was just sort of chipping away and asking founders like if they're ready to do the hire, if they're ready to do the hire. So it's condensed the process a lot, but probably made it slightly more prickly for founders because I understand that it is difficult to make the decisions around who you hire into leadership. It gives you evidence to back up something we believe, but it allows the, the founder to rationalize it. How, how do you present that data to them? It's a couple of things. Um, the main thing is that I, I chart out the unicorn data by year from where the unicorn was, at, say, from their Series A to five years later. And then I'll plot out the founder's company data to the same point. So for example, if the founder has been doing this for three years, I will show them how many people they've got in their leadership team and how many years experience that is total after three years versus where the average unicorn was at three years. So they can just get a snapshot in time that they can very easily compare between the two things. And that's usually quite stark because what we typically see is that at Unicorn, after three years, they've got around about 180 years of experience in the leadership team. And often the businesses that we speak to are significantly less than that. So they're more like 100 years-ish. And it's a really just sort of clear snapshot to be able to say, you were trying to do this without as much support as unicorns have just in terms of experience at the top. And I should also point out, I think this data is never used to point fingers or to say to founders, oh, you're doing it all wrong. Like if you were going to be a unicorn, you'd have this by now, etc. It's not that at all. Because there are lots of unicorns that were quite different from the mean. Like, for example, Asana didn't have anyone else in the leadership team. It was only two founders. Like that was it. So it's not to say that you can't be away from the unicorn mean and not still create a fantastic business. 
it's more of a conversation point just to get that dialogue started. Like you're reasonably far away from where unicorns were. Do you feel under supported? Is there anyone that you think would really add value to the leadership team? Are you a bit light in sales and marketing? If you think you are, like, let's dig into the unicorn data on that to see what unicorns that are like your business were doing at this same point, for example, three years in. So I'm a founder. I bought into this. I'm going to hire ever more extraordinary people. I'm going to continue doing that for five years. And I'm going to hire three to four VP level, president level, exec level every 12 months. What stops that from happening? Yeah, it's a really good question because it's kind of like I totally get it. But what I find very interesting is that there are so many examples of founders, famous founders, making these huge hires externally very early on and going on to say, you know, I never could have done it without these people that I hired. Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, hiring Eric Schmidt. There are so many examples, like Bill Gates hiring Steve Ballmer. There are so many examples of this happening and founders know it to be true. And yet when they actually come to do it, they find it really difficult. And I don't blame them. It's really hard. So the things that really stop them from doing it are just straight up money. Often at the point at which they raise Series A, they've been bootstrapped. They've probably never spent more than 60,000, pounds on a basic salary of one single hire. And that felt quite uncomfortable. And now you're saying to them, you've got to staff out the leadership team and you're going to bring in three people that charge a basic salary of roughly like £150,000 basic each. And then you're going to pay search firm fees for each one of those. So before you even start, you're laying down like £200,000 per hire. That feels really uncomfortable when you have never spent that much money, not even close to that much money on a single hire before. So it's just like a cognitive change that needs to happen. And it takes a bit of time for that to happen. And I completely understand why. That's one thing. There's another thing around, I think, what if I hire these people and they just come in and just completely change the culture? Like they're really corporate and we're this fun startup that's nice to work for. And then we're going to hire people that have big paychecks and come in a suit and kind of ruin all that. But the reality is that like, the people that you're hiring will have been in startups before. Like Almost certainly the, the jobs that they were just in before you hired them was in a startup. They are professional second-in-command type people in startups. They know how to be culturally appropriate because they're also there for the culture. They're not there for a bad time. And if they wanted to go and work in a corporate, they almost certainly could, but they're choosing to be in a startup because they really want to do that. So that's one thing. I also hear quite a lot at the moment of, Maybe we can make one VP or C-suite hire, but making three to four seems insane because the people that we hire will not know how to work with each other. But again, you're hiring people that have been in startup leadership teams before. They know how to work with other people. If you hire a great chief revenue officer, they will fully respect product officer and vice versa because they know that they can't do this without the other person. That, that sort of dispels that myth. I think the other thing that certainly we've talked about a lot of Notion as well and comes up very often is what I sort of tend to call this thing called preemptive guilt, which is basically when a founder is looking at hiring someone and this executive search process spans out across Europe and almost certainly into the US as well, there's a big chance they're going to have to relocate somebody. So say you have a business in Stockholm, you're looking for a chief product officer fairly likely you'll have to relocate someone from London or Barcelona or Berlin or San Francisco, New York. Often people 
at the experience level that you need them to be to do that job have got kids and a partner. So not only are you moving the person to Stockholm, you're moving their family. And then before the founder has even started this search process, they've got this imaginary chief project officer with three kids and a partner and a dog. They're moving to Stockholm. And it's like, well, what if I can't give them the perfect job and they have to go back? Like, oh my gosh, you've got like three kids educations on my shoulders and what they go into school and they start learning Swedish then they have to leave and go back to the US it's all this stuff that goes on in their head before they've even start looking for candidates and that kind of thing actually happens more than I thought it would have I've had a number of conversations where founders are worried about that and the real message is don't be worried about that that is not your decision to make as a founder the best thing you can possibly do is start the search process and make every candidate aware this is not a done deal. You know, we're an early stage business. Things can still go wrong. But if you want to come here and work with me on this, I would love to have you. Like, let's do the best job we can do. It's then up to the individual person and their partner and their kids as to whether they want to relocate and take that risk. So that's like probably one of them being, for me anyway, one of the most surprising things that stops founders from hiring senior people. You clearly learn a lot through this experience, but can you describe a really great process of hiring a, a game changer? I can, and I'm going to give you a shameless plug, which is the interview guidelines that I wrote there on our website. <laughs> the reality is when you're hiring anyone, not just someone who's at the very top of their game, but you know, like new graduates and sort of mid-level hires as well, before you make them an offer, you've really got to be able to answer three questions, which are, can they do the job? Do they want to do the job? And do we want them to do the job? The first one is just skills. The second one is their motivation. And the last one really is cultural fit. You kind of got to do them in that order because if you do the, do we want them to do the job bit first, you can end up quite liking them. And then you can make some concessions for the fact that maybe they actually can't do the job particularly well because they just haven't done it before or there's, there's something that's fundamentally missing from what you need out of the candidate. And I, if you can answer those three questions very convincingly to yourself, then they're probably the right person if, if the answer to all three of those questions is yes. But to go through an order, the bit where you do, can they do the job? You've got to be really clear on what you actually need them to do. So quite often I'll say to founders, like, have you got a job description? It's like, oh, no, I don't think we need one. We just know that we need a chief revenue officer. And my response to that is usually like, if you can't write down pretty quickly five bullet points on what you need this person to do, there's not a job there or there's a job that isn't the one you think it is. So the founder writes down five bullet points on what they need this person to do. And then in the, can they do the job part of the job interview, they just go through each one of those five or six, seven things they need this person to do. So it might be, for example, like build a sales strategy for going to the US, for example. So you just say to the candidate, like, when have you done that before and how did you do it here? You just do that for every requirement that's listed on the job description. And then there's a second interview, which is, do they want to do the job? And that's really just like, where do you see your career going? What do you want out of it? How long do you think you're going to be in the next job? Those kind of questions, just really drilling down into like, is what we're offering going to give them what they want in three to four years time? And the last part, do we want them to do the job? It's really just a culture and values fit. And it's a, it's a working session as well. So the culture and values piece is really just go through with the candidates, each one of your values, ask them to describe to you what that means to them. So for example, 
our value is integrity. What does that mean to you? They explain what it means to them and, and does that align with you? Are you comfortable with that? And then ask them to give you an example of, of when they've exhibited that value at, at work. And if you feel like you really want to put pressure on that particular part of the interview process, you just ask them to describe when they behaved in line with that value at a time when other people in the organization were not acting in line with that value. So for example, integrity, describe a time when you've had integrity when the business was not showing signs of integrity. And then the last part of the interview process really is a working session. I hear quite a lot that founders ask very senior candidates to come and do a presentation, which I don't think is a bad thing, but I also don't really think it gets the full experience of the candidate because what you're really doing is getting them to prepare something that they've had a lot of time to think about and is their area of expertise. Whereas the reality is like when they join your business, they're going to be going into areas that they're not comfortable with because that's what doing a startup is. So what I typically advise founders to do is all the co-founders or everyone in the leadership team blocks out an hour or two hours of their diary. You get the candidate in and you sit in a room with a whiteboard and some markers and possibly some data sources as well. And you just try as a group answer a question that's like you've not been able to answer until this point. So it might be like, we're going into the US. How do we do that? And you spend just an hour or two hours like going back and forth on what data you need, like what data you have available. You just see how you work with the candidate and how they think when they're on the spot. Because the reality is once they get into the organization, that's the kind of stuff that they're going to be doing. So you want to have a dry run at that. Very long-winded answer, but that's basically how I would describe the hiring process for a game changer. Do you want to cover off something about how you help through that process? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the other element of hiring a game changer really is that often founders try to avoid paying search firm fees because they are really expensive. And I do understand it's a lot of money. The cheapest really you'll ever end up paying an exec search firm is about £45,000. It's a lot of cash. But at the same time, I think when you think about the kind of candidate pool that that opens up for you, it's huge. Like the best search firms have got genuinely global networks. Um, they can find you like the best person from really anywhere in the world and, and potentially even relocate that person for you. And even when you just think about it from an opportunity cost point of view, say you employ a search firm to find a CTO for you. They themselves or they will have someone in, in their organization working on that brief two to three days a week, full time for as long as it takes. Often that takes nine months to a year. So if you end up paying them £50,000, say, it's actually not that much money for what is essentially a part-time job for the best part of a year. You would easily pay a back-end developer that. So why not pay a search firm who's a real expert in their field to do that? So that's a big part of it. I think also venture funds can certainly help you with that. Like, for example, we have a preferred supplier list of search firms and recruiters that are all vetted. That information is shared between Excel, Boulderton, EQT, us, and a handful of other funds. We don't share anything confidential, but what we do say is, for example, we're looking for a search firm to run a VP engineering search in Beijing. Like, do you know anyone? And Excel will say, oh, yeah, we have this great search firm who ran that search for us back in October. Like, do you want an intro? They did a great job. So we share all that information. It's all categorized so we can quickly find a search firm that's operated out of Beijing and works within certain parameters as the kind of businesses they work with. That's really how we support that. So end-to-end, it's helping founders get okay with the idea that they're going to pay a search firm, and then it's helping them find a really great search firm, and then it's setting up a great interview process so that they can accidentally hire someone who's not 
the best candidate for the job. And when you look across well, our portfolio or wider, who's doing this really well? Yeah, there's quite a few companies that are doing really well. I'm, I'm probably not going to comment on our portfolio just because I don't want to single anyone out aside from GoCardless, who are doing an absolutely amazing job of this. Their leadership team is absolutely fantastic. And I think Hiroki, their CEO, has done just this exceptional job of putting faith in the people that he's brought into the leadership team, that they will be able to work with each other, that there isn't going to be any ego there, that they're going to be very respectful of the culture, even though a lot of them have come out of corporates. And it works incredibly well. He's also been fantastic at understanding that the money that goes to search firms is worth paying because it means he doesn't have to do the uh, searching through LinkedIn and that those search firms will find him candidates that are absolutely world-class. So I think they're a great example of it. Other examples of it, I think um, the one that really jumps out for me is HashiCorp, particularly on the tenure front. They've got a track record of hiring amazing people for the stage that they're at. And then once they get past that stage, keeping those people in the business, but demoting them and bringing in people above them, but keeping them happy and keeping them in the business. And the way that they've done that is that the founders did it themselves. So they were the leaders of the business. And about a year or two after they started, it was just growing too quickly. And they were kind of like, you know, we think we're probably not the best people to lead this. They stepped back from being sort of um, like co-leadership and brought in an external CEO And then they've sort of done that in other roles in the business. Um, So for example, um, they had a VP engineering who was fantastic for the early stage of the business, but then it got to a point where the size of the business just wasn't something he was used to. So he dropped into a software engineering manager role and he recruited a VP engineering that he would want to work for. And he stayed there, really enjoys it. He enjoys working for the VP engineering. She was from VMware and had had scaled teams into the hundreds before. So she knew how to do it. So, So... Two examples there, GoCardless and HashiCorp, both really interesting businesses in the way they've been able to scale the teams. Well, Maddie, it's been a fascinating conversation. I, 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 personally, I want to learn more about the magic soup of different ways of thinking. That's a, a great phrase. I'm, I'm going to make sure I use that going forward. And I'm really excited to see what you, what you do with this going over the next couple of years as we move through into the next round of investments with our current portfolio and, and new ones. Um, just for listeners, thank you very much. The next podcast is going to be actually with a game-changing hire into one of our portfolio companies, their chief strategy officer, Sarika Garg of TradeShift, talking about category design and how TradeShift is transforming the entire industry. So I'm really looking forward to that one. But uh, Maddie, once again, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Pleasure to talk. Thank you so much. Remember, you can find an in-depth write-up of this interview, along with the dozens and dozens we've done on the Notion website at notion.vc under resources. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify and Google Podcast. Thank you.